Welcome to Media Futures Spotlights, a series exploring the great research coming out of the Media Futures Hub at UNSW Sydney. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, your host for today, and I'm speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Bidjigal and Gadigal people in what is now called Sydney, Australia. Here on the pod, we acknowledge and pay our respects to elders past and present and express our solidarity with the movements for Black and First Nations lives. My guest today is Dr. Astrid Larange, a poet, researcher, and teacher, and a staunch comrade in the work to make a more just world. We're going to talk about Astrid's research, her practice as a poet, and a forthcoming paper that explores the use of declassified archives as the source material for the poetic witnessing of state violence and secrecy, a topic very close uh, to my own heart and research interests. So Astrid Larange, welcome to the Media Futures podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. I'm really excited about our chat. Me too. So um, I want to get into this paper of yours soon, but first, can you tell me a little bit about your research? What are the main things that you're interested in and and what brought you to them? Sure. Um, So I'm a scholar of cultural studies and literature, primarily contemporary poetics and poetry, and also of contemporary art and media. I was trained in cultural studies, but I mostly do work on poetry and I happen to work in a school of fine art and I mostly teach into the art theory program there. And I also do a lot of collaboration with uh, colleagues in media studies. So I have a pretty broad and interdisciplinary approach, I guess. Primarily my research focuses on reading as a critical and active practice and as something that emerges in really kind of specific and contingent ways in response to a particular text and at a particular moment in history. So basically I kind of think about how texts in different ways instruct their readers towards specific reading practices that are attuned to that text in particular and that really kind of open up new ways of thinking about and looking at the world. So for me, reading is the primary object of study, but I like to read pretty widely. So I read poems, I read artworks, I read infrastructures, I read um, the state, I read power, uh, and I read resistance movements in opposition to state power. I just love the mix of interests, the mix of practices and the strange kind of interdisciplinary positioning of, of you and your and your work. As you mentioned, you're also a poet and a very accomplished one. Um, and in fact, anyone who's listening, I really encourage you to grab a copy of Astrid's latest collection, Labour and Other Poems. It's really fantastic. And you're also part of an artistic collective called Snack Syndicate um, with our fellow Media Futures Hub researcher, Andrew Brooks. All of which is to say your work has a strong public and artistic dimension as well as an academic one. So I wanted to ask you, do you see poetry itself as a form of research or something that informs research? How does poetry fit into the work that you do? Mm, It's a great question. So for me, I really approach poetry less as a literary genre or even as a particular form that writing might take and much more um, as a kind of uh, generative orientation towards critical reading practices. So that might seem a little bit obtuse, but I guess what I mean by that is if poetry really is primarily about the way that language comes to mean. So if we think about the origin of the word poetry, it comes from poesis, which is to make. So poetry is really about how language comes to be meaningful through its made qualities, through the use of language, through 
the use of rhetoric, through the use of rhythm and music and tone, through the use of repetition, through all of these kinds of devices that really bring the shape of meaning to language. So for me, poetry is less about what kind of text we're looking at and more about an approach to reading a text. So if we read with a kind of ear for poetry or if we read texts when we're informed by poetry as a way of understanding language practice, we sort of read for the conditions of that text's making. We read for how it was made, who it was made by, the conditions in which that making occurred, the historical and social and cultural forces that shape language at a particular time, the different ways that different reading publics have taken up that text and transformed it through their reading and sharing and teaching, and the kind of way that we can understand that if language is made, then there are people who do that making, there are conditions that underwrite that making, and the meaning that we ascribe to language can also therefore be unmade and remade. So for me, poetry is kind of a framework for understanding the way we come to relate to each other through meaning and the way that meanings come to be the site for contestation around life itself, around power, around um, opportunity, around access, around representation, and around sort of the very contours of what we imagine to be possible in the world that we share. I sort of think of the way the relationship between poetry and research for me is quite indivisible. When I'm doing a lot of research, I am often writing a lot of poetry because I almost feel like poetry is one site where I can sort of expand my scholarly interests and, and ideas uh, into new territories that aren't afforded to me in the essay or in the book. At the same time, I also think my own poetry requires a lot of research. So for a recent poem I just finished on iron, I did about six months worth of reading into um, the Iron Curtain, into the Iron Lady, into cultural Cold War politics, into Margaret Thatcher's wardrobe um, and into the kind of uh, the way that iron became in the 20th century, a very odd and overly used metaphor for ideology. There's an extent for me um, to which poetry kind of just is my own research practice, but in which it takes a kind of different form than other things that I produce. My God, we're going to have to have you back on uh, just to talk about your poem and uh, the iron in Margaret Thatcher's fashion choices. So from poetry to academic writing about poetry, you have a terrific new paper coming out next year called Reading History Against the State Secret, Carlos Soto Roman's Chile Project Reclassified, the Remediated Archive and the Poetics of Redaction. It's going to be in a special issue of the journal Angelaki on Witnessing After the Human, which I happen to be co-editing, so um, I know how fantastic this paper is. And before we get into what the paper itself explores, just to set the scene for everybody listening, can you tell me a bit about Carlos Soto Roman as a poet and about his work, Chile Project Reclassified? Yeah, sure. So Carlos Soto Roman is um, a poet from Chile. He's also yeah, an amazing person, um, a pharmacist in his everyday life and a poet at night and a really wonderful person. He's what you might call a documentary poet, um, which is someone who writes poetry by drawing on direct kind of archival materials. So rather than writing about events in history, he writes from the materials of history. 
And so he does a lot of direct treatment with, with documents, with paperwork, with files, with records. And he, um, to various degrees, kind of treats these archival documents and edits them and transforms them uh, into, well, you might call them poems or you might call them artworks, um, but transforms them into these new sites for reading and uh, sites for kind of um, doing counter archival or counter historical work. So the project that I write about, um, Chile Project Reclassified, was published in 2013 by the online platform, uh, online publisher of uh, digital formats, Gauss PDF, which is basically one person, um, Jay Gordon Failer, who runs a Tumblr site, and he publishes uh, work which can be of any genre um, and in any file format. The only kind of stipulation is that it's a whole work, not an excerpt, and that it's able to be digitally archived. So I think of it as a poetry project, but there is a lot of sound work and video work and PDF work and interactive, um, interactive publications on there as well. So this work was published on that site in 2013. It's a 45 page PDF document and each page is a different page from the massive dossier of partially declassified documents that the Clinton government released to the public from 1999 onwards, uh, relating to the CIA's involvement in Chile, both before Allende was elected, during the CIA-backed coup d'etat, and then following into the long and bloody dictatorship of um, Pinochet. These documents were partially declassified more or less as a strategy, because at that point in time, the Spanish government was um, mounting a case against Pinochet and required the US to supply crucial evidence. The US didn't want to supply that evidence directly because it was, you know, because it had such a long standing involvement in Chilean politics, but it also didn't want to be seen to be holding up the kind of democratic process. So it released them to the public in order that Spain might indirectly then use them um, in their proceedings. There was a long and complicated argument between the government and the CIA about um, whether or not declassification could actually happen because many of these documents were pertaining to events that sort of ontologically could not be admitted to because they didn't exist because they were these um, highly secret intelligence operations which you know weren't to have any kind of status of the real in order to remain um, properly secret. So the compromise was basically to release these documents and to do so with a, with a kind of um, public image of freedom of information and democracy and history making and maybe even a little bit of recognition of wrongdoing. But ultimately, for the most part, they remain highly classified. There's lots and lots and lots of reduction. The CIA was able to keep a lot of information um, redacted. And so what um, Soto Roman does is take 45 of these um, 20,000 odd documents and he basically kind of wipes out the unredacted or the declassified text and more or less just leaves these kinds of very um, noisy, confusing and for the most part unreadable tracts of redacted text and all of the informatic noise of many scans and photocopies and other kinds of uh, kind of translation processes between different file formats and documents and paper archives and PDFs. 
And every now and then you might see one word here and there, but really for the most part, they are these unreadable documents, unreadable because they are redacted in black by um, the CIA and then unreadable further because they've been whited out by Soto Rahman and the, whatever um, is there is kind of um, reduced to this noisy background in this editorial process. So it's a kind of unreadable poem, if you like, or a poem in which the reading is happening in all sorts of ways that preclude um, the reader themselves from accessing this putatively um, declassified information. Um, and it sort of makes for an interesting experience because what you're really looking at is the sort of layered media-rich interface of the document itself. So the document as in the PDF document you're looking at, but also the document as a kind of... Um, as a sort of paradigmatic object of bureaucracy and statecraft and information management. Yeah, it reminds me in some ways of, of research I did some years ago now on poetry from um, Guantanamo Bay and um, the redaction of um, documents from the war on terror, particularly CIA records of, of torture and interrogation in um, Afghanistan and, and elsewhere. Um, but this um, experiment with the redaction itself is, is fascinating. You say in the paper that Soto Roman's remediation of the CIA files enacts a refusal to accept the passage of state violence to state secret to historical record. So how does it do this? Can you kind of unravel a little bit for us um, that refusal of, of going from state violence to secret to, to history? I think one of the really interesting things for me about this work is that it really um, quite emphatically denies the account of this history that the CIA and the US government would want to give, both uh, through these documents themselves, um, through the status of the state secret itself, the story that the CIA tells itself about its role in Chile, the story that the US government tells itself about its role in um, other countries, its kind of imperial force in shaping other countries as well as the story that, it, that uh, the US would tell the public about this. I think there's a degree to which when um, the US government declassifies these documents, it, it takes a risk in admitting to intervention in, in Chile, but it also achieves something. It achieves the status of making history. It sort of achieves the, this sense that what happened was the past and that there is this kind of definite break between the Clinton government who declassifies and the prior governments who, who were involved in, who were driving this intervention. And it also kind of, it is able to shape the terms of reference. It's able to um, give a kind of diagnostic account of Chile. It's, it, it's able to give a kind of, have narrative control over how this event is described and even the degrees to which the event can sort of be um, acknowledged through the disclosure of information and through the refusal to disclose information through the kind of you know the indirect reference to the secrets that cannot be revealed because they're too sensitive and i think what soto roman does by further kind of invisibilizing um the declassified information is is to basically kind of refuse the cia and the u.s government or to refuse the u.s state as a whole the right to this story the right to its representation, the right to its description, and really the right to um, its status as a historical, as a kind of mere historical fact, something that is in the past, something that has finished, and something that 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 can be kind of said to be a chapter that is now closed in in the history of the US and 
um, its imperialism um, in Latin America and elsewhere. And I think what that does is it then sort of points to, if the story cannot belong to the US state through this act of refusal, then there is also a sense that Zotar Roman is talking about, uh, or is kind of gesturing towards those for whom this story can be told, those who live or who have died um, and who have kind of carried the force of resistance against both the Pinochet dictatorship and the imperial forces that supported it, that, that instated it, that those kinds of histories of resistance and survival and, you know, political struggle um, are to be found elsewhere. They cannot be captured by, they will never be represented by, and they sort of like exist almost in a kind of, um, in like an ontological opposition to what the US state would have to say. So it's a bit like saying, in the face of this revelation, which as you're describing it is, you know, the release of the declassification of these documents is meant to then enable history to be written. Finally, finally, we, we know, and now, and now history can be set and history can be written. And what was secret is now, is now revealed. And you're saying, well, actually like there's a re-grabbing of authority that happens in that. And we need to resist that at the level of the, the process itself. Yeah, precisely. And I, and I also think there's something about the editing that also draws our attention to the document itself as a really interesting media object in the production of statecraft, in the operation of bureaucracy, and also in the process of history making. Because there's this kind of sense through Soto Roman's um, whiting out, you know, which I also like that he did this physical um, hands-on sort of correction fluid um, whiting out um, on a physical printed out version of this PD of this kind of PDF. Because if we kind of think back through all the layers of inscription that produce this odd PDF poetry collection, we're thinking about handwritten notes, we're thinking about physical paper archives, we're thinking about facsimiles and telegrams and all sorts of paper infrastructures which then became copied through the Xerox. There's, there's a, it's probably too complicated to get into in, in such a short interview but there's a passage in that paper which talks through the Xerox as this um, very important technology which emerges precisely at the time that you know the US is intervening in Chilean politics and the role of the Xerox and the capacity to decentralize and to copy um, state documents as a really important, but also as an important technology or an important invention for state management, but also one that brought about a certain type of risk because with the photocopy, there was this kind of invitation for corruption and error and forgery and fraudulence and all of these kinds of, um, and also kind of leaks and, um, all sorts of things. So around the same time that the photocopy comes into play in, in paper bureaucracy, there's also the sort of um, the photocopied um, dossier uh, leaked by a, a whistleblower that sort of emerges almost simultaneously as its own history. Um, and so the photocopy is a document which on the one hand bears witness to these original objects of state management also kind of becomes um, imbued with the possibility and the transformative possibility of the copy as an erroneous um, double, if you like. And so I think what Soto Roman's project also does is to draw our attention quite literally because there's sort of nothing else to look at, if you like, to the actual 
inscriptive layers of the document as bearing this long history of mediation between handwriting and between typewriting and between photocopying and between faxing and between kind of all sorts of transcriptive processes of speech and telegram and the, the handwritten notes and the stamps and the crossings out and the and the black pen redacting and then the white out whiting out it's like this very um intensive sort of material artifact that comes to be you know the so-called truth-bearing document of history and so he sort of also shows that history comes to be claimed through these operations of power but it is also written often in these quite precarious and contingent ad hoc moments of powers and so i think he also attunes our attention to chaotic interface of the document as this site where history is not just kind of merely recorded but is actually kind of taken by force and then committed to the document in all sorts of acts of, you know, what we could just kind of straight up call forgery in many instances. So interesting that just about the Xerox, because, you know, the Xerox is also a really important device in the emergence of human computer interaction and in the kind of, in the study and understanding of that and Xerox, both in the copier and, and interfaces, and then in the work that happens in Xerox labs in the seventies and eighties, often in very close conjunction with the US state and the US military is what gives us things like the mouse and sets in train a whole lot of computation that we experience now. There's these huge connections very important connections between the, those tools of bureaucracy, the way they interact with the state and its desire for secrecy and the computers and information systems that, that we use today. Absolutely. And I, you know, I cite Lisa Gittleman's amazing work on the Xerox in my essay, but she outlines this fascinating history of the Xerox's role in the Cold War as well, in this idea that there was this kind of perception that because the Xerox belonged to the US uh, or to the West, if you like, as this kind of tool of democratization. And, you know, it was very important to the US to sort of always emphasize that the Soviet state had sort of outlawed Xeroxes or like had sort of desired to keep all um, state management in a centralized registry or whatever. And, and so it also become the Xerox becomes an interesting figure for all sorts of Cold War ideas about how information is circulated and the sort of risk management, if you like, of the, the claim to democracy that the US both wanted to have, but also was, you know, in many ways, um, very terrified by at the same time. You know, Chile of, and Pinochet, of course, is like a you know, key battleground, I suppose, of, of the Cold War. But, you know, there's also an interesting computational uh, history here where Chile prior to Pinochet uh, was one of the countries that had most actively taken up cybernetic theory as a way of um, organizing government and was building up a networked computational system to sort of help run government, which um, was then sort of mothballed in the aftermath of the coup, as I understand it. It does sort of bring us into these like strange confluences of the media technological and the state secret and Chile as a, as a specific instance. What do you make then of the move to go from a printed out document covered in whiteout to then turn that into a PDF and then make it replicable, something that, that is by ver the very virtue of viewing it produced again as a copy? Mm. Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, I think it's interesting actually because many years after it was published online in its original format. It was published as a really beautiful um, short 
run edition of a physical artifact. And I really liked the way he managed that, which was by printing out each page individually and not binding them, but, but sort of placing them into a really beautiful black manila folder. Um, so it's sort of like its own little dossier or its own little bureaucratic pack. And that was a really lovely version of it. And subsequently, I think it may or may not be um, republished in longer uh, collections of poetry. But I think for Soto Roman, one of the things that is interesting for him, I think, is this um, idea of the kind of PDF archive as a peculiar site for reading, you know, and I think it's interesting too that in 1999, a PDF was was quite a different um, digital file than it is now. You know, when I open up Carlos um, Soto Roman's work on my computer now in 2021, my PDF, the sort of proprietary PDF reader on, on my computer actually kind of does a, um, a text recognition reading of the PDF. And so I get all of this, um, sort of all of the words that are available in the PDF will come up and it will kind of make it searchable in this, in this weird way for a, a text or for a piece that has very little text on it. Um, and it made me kind of interested. I went, went and downloaded a whole bunch of documents from the US government website that are from the archive itself. And they're fully readable now using my computer's inbuilt PDF reader. And so I could actually kind of do find functions and kind of read various passages. It sort of strikes me that the poem I read now and write about in 2021 is different to the poem that Carlos published almost 10 years ago, um, which is different in turn to these documents, which were published on the government website, um, you know, now almost 20 years ago, or maybe that is, no, that is more than 20 years ago. No, it's not. I don't want to speak for Soto Roman, but I think for him, there's something interesting about the way that we come to read documents um, on the computer and the way that the PDF document is not just this sort of, even though it's designed to be, in a sense, a sort of stable document that would be as close to um, print as possible, that would kind of uh, fix, if you like, its image and text um, as though it were print, actually is a very dynamic and a very networked file format that allows for all sorts of kind of um, engagements with um, the screen that you look at, the programs that open and read the PDFs, and then the sort of the archives to which they belong. So I think there's something for him about replacing it, if you like, into this sort of new but ever-changing site of the PDF archive as one of the primary spaces we find ourselves in when we do historical work, when we do scholarly research, when we look for the materials for our critical creative practices, um, and also when we kind of, in a sense, generally speaking, go in pursuit of, you know, knowledge and the truth and, you know, modes of understanding the world in which we live. So I think there's something about it that it's sort of like it's drawing on this kind of new site for the archiving of knowledge, um, but it's doing so by sort of taking something out and editing it and then placing it back in as a sort of, in order to sort of invite readers to go back to the original archive as well with this newly attuned mode of readership. So one of the kind of things that I think is so interesting about documentary poetry is that it doesn't just say, hey, look at this poem that I made from this document. It says, look at this poem that I made from this document and now take um, a poetic reading of this document back to the archive that produced it in the first place and read that archive with the attention that you would bring to a poem, with the sense of material conditions and authorship and choice that 
you consider when you read a poem. So maybe one of the reasons that Soto Roman commits this um, PDF work back to an online archive is precisely to kind of remind readers that they should actually go to the US government website or to the Australian um, government website, or they should read official histories with that same level of attention and criticality to say, how do we kind of understand the writtenness of history, the writtenness of law, or the writtenness of statecraft? It's like one really important factor in a larger project of denaturalizing power and denaturalizing history and denaturalizing these kinds of seemingly immutable concepts that we inherit that describe the world that we live in and that sort of give it a sense in which it has always been this way and will always be this way. Is that why for you the poem or engagement with it constitutes witnessing rather than say evidence? Yeah, absolutely. And why I think poetry is such an important critical framework for merely being in the world and looking at it and reading it closely and denaturalizing its its shapes of meaning. Astrid, this has been fascinating and I'm sure that uh, our listeners will be keen to check out the publication when it's out sometime mid next year. But uh, before we finish up, I thought I'd just ask you what's next for you in your work? Mm. I'm writing at the moment about the wonderful poet Divya Victor, who I would consider a documentary poet as well, although she has a variety of modes. She brings together um, documentary poetry and lyric poetry in a really amazing way. She has a poem in her new book. The book's called Curb and, and this poem is called Alka's Testimony. And it's a really amazing transcription of sounds in a court in a courtroom during a particular testimonial account of racist violence. But the um, the poem only describes the sounds in the courtroom, which are not the testimonial account itself. It's kind of all of the background noises and the noises of, of bodies and um, the noise of the infrastructure of the, um, the courtroom and the, um, the noise of kind of paper and machinery. And I'm writing about that for a edited collection on um, sound studies and literature. And so I'm kind of thinking about the sound of the sentence. So the sound of the sentence as a unit of grammar, the sound of the sentence as a kind of a grammatical excess, and then the sound of the sentence as a particular form of legal judgment. And I'm using this poem as a way of thinking through those things. Um, and in addition, I'm working with um, Dr. Andrew Brooks, my frequent collaborator. We're writing a paper at the moment about pedagogy and care in the post-pandemic university classroom. And we're also writing um, a paper, we just finished writing a paper on riot poems, that is um, poems that emerge from um, street-based struggle. So lots going on at the moment. And my iron poem is going to be in a collection of poems about each one takes one of Australia's top commodity exports as its locus for thought. So iron is a poem about ideology um, and I'm now working on beef for that poem and beef is um, a poem about sovereignty. So that's what I'm, I'm cooking up at the moment. Amazing. Dr. Astrid Larange, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was extremely fun. 
That's it for this episode of Media Futures Spotlights. For more info about the Media Futures Hub, you can visit us at www.mediafutureshub.org. Please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, etc. Really helps more people discover the amazing work that people are doing at the Media Futures Hub. A special thanks to our producer, the talented Cara Jensen McKinnon, and to our research assistant, the brilliant Bron Miller. This podcast was made possible by funding from the School of the Arts and Media at UNSW. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll be with you again soon.